We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with some allies of built environment professionals about public engagement and how they're bringing the great work architects do to people in the community. Our guest in this episode is Elizabeth Farrelly, who, although not being a registered architect, has had a prolific career contributing to the architecture profession through many disciplines. Elizabeth is an author, journalist, critic, educator, and former public servant for the City of Sydney. In this interview, Elizabeth shares her incidental entry into the study of architecture, her thoughts on architecture criticism in public media outlets, the importance of getting placemaking right in Australian cities, and Elizabeth also expands on some of the themes in her latest book, Killing Sydney, which addresses some of the significant issues of expedited development in Australia's biggest metropolis. I'll now hand over to Sally Sue, an Imagine representative based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Elizabeth, I think it's been really, really good to have you on our podcast. I think uh, the audience and listeners will be really pleased to hear a diverse voice on our episode, not an architect <laughs> uh-huh, by you know practice, but really I think a great contributor to our profession in general. And I think I'll roughly only touch on it and I'll let you explain a bit more on what you're doing. Many of us know you as an author, a columnist, a critique, and uh, you've been a long-time columnist for Sydney Morning Herald, which I've enjoyed reading and you recently released the book uh, Killing Sydney not to be taken by the book title I actually love reading it because I got to see Sydney from a different lens can you tell us a bit more on how you got to become um, the critique and the author that you are today and how you how, how your training background had led you to be able to have such a public voice Look, I suppose like most sort of life stories, as it were, it's part design and part accident. You know, I started studying philosophy. Actually, started studying medicine, to be honest, but they made the mistake of allowing me to do philosophy in my first year because I'd already done sciences. So I fell in love with philosophy and studied that. And it took me a couple of years to get around to doing something useful, and I decided to study architecture <laughs> because it, uh, I had some flatmates who were architects or architecture students And I thought, well, they have a lot of fun, so I think I'll do that. You know, it was a bit random, although when I look back, I think, well, maybe there was some, you know, some sense in that. But it was a lot of fun. I loved architecture school and found it really exciting. And it kind of blew me away, actually, to realise for the first time that, as I understood it, that three-dimensional things, in particular three-dimensional space, could have meaning and really... That has been the question that I've pursued for the rest of my professional life, which is which is quite interesting to see now. Anyway, so I, I worked as an architect for two years in Auckland after graduating. I was headhunted by a local firm, which was quite fun, and ended up designing, working on the design of an art museum, which was great to be you know a graduate straight out of school and doing that stuff. But, typical me, I got a bit bored and thought, you know, I don't think I'm ready to go travelling. And so I sort of lobbed into London thinking, well, let's see what this is up to. And, and I, I took a couple of jobs, architectural jobs, 
you know, there were it was it was a funny time in London. It was the eighties, and you know, Margaret Thatcher was in charge, and there were strikes everywhere. And I thought it was the ugliest place I'd ever seen in my life <laughs> for quite a long time. So I took a job. My first job was for some Iranian engineers in Leicester Square, which didn't last very long, which was very strange. You know, everyone worked through agencies in those days. So I, I applied to an agency, and I got three jobs. And the second one after the Leicester Square one was in Bristol, because I thought, oh, that'll be fun, I'll go and it's near the sea. Of course, it's not near the sea. Being a Kiwi, I thought, it's got to be near the sea, let's go and check that out. But it was near a river, which was the start. But I didn't last very long in Bristol either, because it's such a small town, and it was after London. Even after a couple of months in London, it just seemed really, really quiet. And everyone went to bed at sort of five o'clock in the evening, seemed to me. <laughs> so I scarfed back to London and took the job that I did for a year in Islington for his market, working with some architects on the Royal Victoria Dock, uh, you know, part of the Docklands conversion in, back in when Thatcher decided to draw all the money out of the new towns and the rest of England and put it all into London Docklands and create a financial district and change the whole of the UK by doing that. So this was this was part of that. Richard Rogers' firm was doing the master planning and I worked for a firm called Pollard, Thomas and Edwards who were doing just this particular dock and I was working on our particular building which was uh, it was like quarter of a mile long it was this huge warehouse sort of agglomerated warehousing which had been a sort of tobacco and limes and things warehouse in the in the London way and, and we were working on conversion schemes and anyway it's a long story all of this but that summer which was June 19 <laughs> something or other 84 I guess I remember going to it the end of year show at the AA in London, which was then the very, well, probably still is, the very cool, you know, all kind of jet trash from all over Europe ended up at the AA because it was really expensive and really funky and kind of cultish and interesting and a very good school of architecture and, and independent of the universities. And so it was able to be quite eccentric. And people like Zaha Hadid were teaching there and Nigel Coates and Ron Arad and a whole lot of interesting crazies. <laughs> And anyway, I went to the end of your show and, and thought, oh, this is really self-indulgent nonsense. Because yeah. <laughs> I was interested in early modernism and the kind of moral impetus of architecture, I still am. I was curious about the relationship between socialism and some of those early modern architects and the group architects in New Zealand who were doing really interesting work and in had been in the 50s. And so I thought this it was sort of decadent, this work. Zaha Hadid had just designed her winning Hong Kong Peak competition entry. And uh, so she was suddenly famous. And she used to sail through the AI like this great kind of princess with this issue because she was quite substantial as a person. And she had all these this kind of troop of um, 25 sort of art insects and kind of black clothing who used to trail after her everywhere and kind of um, hang on her every word, which was quite fun. Anyway, so I, I was having a drink or something with my former dean, Alan Wilde, who'd been the professor of architecture in Auckland, and having a whinge about this show and saying what rubbish I thought it was. And he said, don't talk to me about it, write it down and send it to someone and get them to publish it. Um, and so I did. I thought, oh, that'll be fun. Okay, I'll do that. So I'd only written one thing for publication before, and that was in New Zealand. Um, and I did that, and I still have the piece. So it was published in Building Design, which was a weekly rag that came out on Fridays, and everyone used to read it. And they put me on sort of page three or something with a big picture. And so suddenly I was kind of notorious for being so rude about the AA, which, you know, nobody did. 
in those days, and nobody was, was, was cheeky about the AA, and I didn't know that, so I just thought, well, I'll just say what I think. Um, and, and I did. Anyway, so on the basis of that piece, really, I got a job at the Architectural Review. Um, <laughs> almost just like that. The, I was having... I, I met... Uh, in fact, my, the same professor, Alan Wilde, introduced me to Peter Davy, who was the editor, and said, why don't you come have lunch? And, and Peter used to drink every lunchtime, so we were down in the basement pub underneath the AR in Westminster. It used to have these terrace houses in Westminster and these beautiful Georgian terraces and this kind of ultra-modernist magazine that I thought that was quite appealingly ironic. And and in the basement was this pub, this London pub that Nicholas Pevsner had rescued from demolition and sort of reinstalled in the basement. So there were sort of flagstone floors and stuffed lions and stuff like that. Anyway, so Peter Davey said, well, you know, there's a a job going here, do you? And I'm going, yeah. well, what do you think I'm going to do? Be a writer? Don't, don't be silly. Anyway, so he, um, I was persuaded in the end that it was an interesting thing to do. And so I applied for the job and got it. And and that was that. So I, I just started writing about architecture. <laughs> I did that for, I don't know, two or three years and did a special issue, had a lot of fun, did a lot of traveling. I went and interviewed, you know, Renzo Piano in Europe and the US and, and stuff, that was kind of quite cool. But I got a bit fed up with just talking to architects, which because it was a professional way. And so when we came back to live in Sydney, which was the end of 88, two or three people took me out for coffee, including Graham Yarn, who's now the city planner, and Michael Dickinson, who sadly died, but who used to write about architecture rather well um, in a thing called the Sydney Review, which also died. Uh, like most good publications in this town. And they said, well, if you're going to be here, you should write. So ring up the Sydney Morning Herald and tell them that they need you to write about architecture. (laughs) So I did, and and that was that, really. So I've done that ever since. That is so amazing because I think many of you know it because you've been a consistent voice in our city. And I think to hear that background is actually really pleasing to hear because I think architecture education is such a broad... um, discipline in its learning and teaching and it allows us to really be able to engage with many other peripheral disciplines and be able to have a high impact and I think we all have slightly different interests so it's such a journey to explore once we finish that education and you've often talked about how um, the architectural circle is so small uh, in its very (laughs) simplistic form that you know it really empowers you to be able to break outside that circle and engage with other profession and really speaking with public because I think our topic today is about public engagement and it's so good to hear you begin to articulate that and why it's important to not just speak with architects and colleagues in order to be able to contribute to our city in a greater manner. Can you explore a bit more how that is? Um... Look, I do think it's really important. I also think, I mean, I think it's extremely unusual for anyone to do that. But I think the profession, there are lots of reasons why almost nobody does it. And when, you know, when I arrived in Sydney, no one was doing it for the Herald, but there were, Peter Ward was doing it at the Australian, Michael Dickinson was doing it in the Sydney Review, there were people in Melbourne, there were probably half a dozen, not necessarily full-time, but largely full-time architecture critics around the country. Now I think there's nobody. And, you know, I mean, half a dozen isn't enough, especially in the sort of boom that we've all been experiencing recently. And as someone wrote... You know, architecture is the most is the most public art form, but also not only the most public, but the most publicly de- 
deterministic in the sense that it changes our lives, the most publicly important, most civically important, and most environmentally effective art form, and yet the least discussed. And I think that's a dreadful, dreadful shame. And I'm looking out my window here at some absolutely rubbish buildings, and it... You know, people get very offended by everything these days, and I feel I want to say, look, every time I look at a street, I, I get offended because everything we build is so rubbish, and it doesn't have to be like that. You know, and it became quite clear to me when I was in the UK that, you know, I used to read theatre critics and film critics and food critics because they had such great writers, even though they were, and a lot of them were really right-wing and really rude, and I didn't agree with a lot of them, but... They were just fabulous writers, and also about architecture. And they used to, they would say things, you know, Gavin Stamp and uh, Charles Jenks, and a whole lot of really good writers. Used to, Roger Scruton used to write about architecture in the UK, and I feel as though I sort of learned the craft from them, really, which was how to be fearlessly rude, but in a way that's entertaining. Because if you're not entertaining, you know, you don't have an audience. So, A. A. Gill was fabulous. I mean, they were f- fantastic writers, and. They're much ruder. Like, they would say, this guy's never been any good and this is his worst building yet, you know. And if you try to say that here, everyone, either you would be sued or everyone sort of thinks you'll be sued. And when I arrived, everyone said to me, oh, you can't write that architect here. You know, you'll get sued if you say anything negative. And I thought, really? And there was a famous Patrick Cook cartoon case when he'd lampooned a... Um, I think it was Blues Point Tower. Patrick Cook was a, a very good cartoonist and there was a huge court case because Harry Sadler sued. And I think Patrick Cook won, but he was almost destroyed by it. And there are a number of other cases. There was a famous case involving John Andrews where uh, I think in this case John Andrews won, but he'd, uh, someone said that his convention centre, which is now demolished, which was in Darling Harbour, uh, leaked like a sieve, I think they said. I can't remember who said it even. And he sued and won. Because although it was clearly true, I don't know if for some reason the courts found against whoever had said it. So so everyone thought you couldn't say anything. And I think that state of affairs has got worse, not better. People, architects in particular, are more frightened. On the one hand, they despise anyone who's not an architect. <laughs> and so they think that their view doesn't count and they haven't got any right to speak. And anyone who is an architect won't speak because they fear being sued, but also fear being reviled by their colleagues and by developers and being regarded as dangerous. And this is not just Australia, not just Sydney, it's now fairly universal, a great fear of public debate, this idea that, you know, you mustn't say anything in public. And so many people sign gag clauses with their employer and that goes for you know doctors and lawyers but also architects and just about every contract has a gag clause in it so no one can speak to the press and no one can say anything critical and no one can say anything almost anything at all in public and they even control what you say on social media which i think is absolutely iniquitous and should be unconstitutional because those you not only have a right to speak as a citizen but you actually in my view have a duty to speak publicly about things of public interest, and that includes how the public space is shaped by the buildings that form it. And that is really important, and it is really wrong that we have no discussion. I think there's another very important reason why we don't talk about this stuff, which is to do with a failure of education, and that's a huge one, in my opinion, which is we 
we've fallen into an idea that only those things that can be measured matter. And that means things that can be measured in terms of dollars or in terms of bums on seats or in terms of popularity or in terms of votes. Those things can be measured. And, of course, science is based on on those precepts. But the arts are not based on those precepts. The arts are fundamentally based on the idea of uh, a cultivated eye and the exercise of judgment and the education of the mind to enable it to make that judgment in a way that is useful and pursuing excellence. And we completely fail to do that. We don't teach any understanding of aesthetics anymore. You can go through architecture school and nobody will use the word beauty once. And we all know that architects actually only care about that. The only thing they care about is whether it looks any good and whether it's going to get published, you know, whether it's going to get on the front page and how the shot will look, which is the hero shot. But it's not discussed and it's not taught and we don't understand composition and we don't talk about whether there might be a better way of doing it. And certainly we don't do it publicly, like we'll bitch about that in the pub, but we won't talk about it. Nobody will ever say to their developer boss, well, you know, this is a better way to do it because it looks better, because it's a beautiful building and it will improve the public space. You never say that because you know you get ridiculed and shouted down and laughed at. And so it's always about you know, cost and structure and deflection and, you know, wind resistance and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. So we abandon, we architects, I mean, here, I think we abandon our core territory, which is the aesthetic territory. Definitely. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's right, because I think much of our conversations to date have revolved around that, and we've talked about how I think reflecting of our current professional landscape, that students, when what they're taught in the university, like you described, there's a, a clear lacking as well. But when you get into practice, there's definitely a framework of how projects are produced. And like you described, these client briefs don't touch on that. They touch on floor space areas. They talk about height. They talk about what they want to achieve commercially out of the projects. And um, there's no opportunities, minimum opportunities really, to reflect on that. And even getting towards on the current print publications, uh, the awards, how they're awarded. <laughs> I think there's much to be said about that. And I think we've come a long way from the era of when you began writing and like you described where we're more connected than ever. There's more platforms for voices to be projected into the world, but more and more the voices are actually diminishing because like you described is such a constraint in what we can put out there in the world by contract or not, whether we're actually trained to be able to comment it or not. So that must be a, a driving force for why you've also launched the book Killing Sydney, isn't it? Because I think that's such a collection of writing that I thought must have taken years to get there <laughs> because I think it's quite reflective of a generation that some may have not even experienced. You describe how you saw Sydney when you first arrived and how it is now. <laughs> Do you want to recap a little for anyone that hasn't read the book and they should? <laughs> oh, look, yeah, so the book begins with my, the beginning, I suppose, of my love affair with Sydney, which was actually I came here briefly on a study tour when I was still a, a student, an architecture student, and fell in love with it. And it was sort of, yeah, as I was describing the book, I stayed with some friends of friends in various funny old share houses in Balmain and Paddington. And, you know, was I remember being sort of driven over the Harbour Bridge in a mini-moke at sort of 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and thinking this is astonishing because everything about Sydney was so sort of sexy. The nature of it, the, you know, the salty but also kind of grubby air and the 
crabbed, mean sort of history background to it and the sense of creative ferment that characterised it at the time. Um, and I described, I think, a, a walk down Oxford Street from the, you know, from the top of Centennial Park all the way down to to the bottom in Darlinghurst. And I just thought it was the most astonishing place because everywhere seemed to be full of creative energy of people, funny little tiny shops that sold kind of handmade paper earrings and odd, you know, lampshades and lava lamps and sort of silly stuff. A lot of it was probably part of that kind of late hippie era, but it was very exciting. It felt a lot like New York felt in those days, which was just full of this sense of optimism and freedom and creativity and and the idea that those things together would change the world, which clearly they didn't (laughs) altogether. (laughs) But it was a very exciting time, I think, in that sort of late 20th century before before neoliberalism kicked in and before the market is a god became ubiquitous. So so yeah, I think Sydney was really thrilling then. And I still you know, I still love it. And I still think it's marvellous and there's still enough of it left and enough of that energy left to delight me at times. But I'm very sorry when I see the direction it's taking and the way we're allowing it to change and the reasons for which we're allowing that to happen, which is essentially just about exploitation, a sort of a mining mindset that just says, you know, grab it and run, which I think will destroy the city that we love, or at least that I love, if we're not careful. Mm, definitely. And I think much of the episode of this year's um, and this season three's podcast touches on those topics because it will touch on vision projects that might be unbuilt, but hopefully is an outlet and a platform to raise these public voices. There's policies and advocacy being discussed. And, and I think all of these have a common thread that we're beginning to stitch together. And I think I see a great optimism in it because uh, much of the times where any architect would uh, propose their proposal, as they do, and um, more often than not, we do have to achieve brief, but there's more and more discussions about how we highlight the intangible that you described because there's so much credit given in spreadsheets, given in what you can see and visualised, and how do we really give that underlying value some limelight so that we can convince developers and clients, all of the agencies um, that are involved in city making and, you know, architecture in general to be able to contribute to that in a greater manner because I think in your book you talk about the enclaves, the places, the little joy moments around the peripheral of the cities that are really where people love to be able to inhabit and I think city has every opportunity to do that and I think you kind of touch on it and I think the question really is then when we bring across is how do we then begin to encourage everyone to participate in this public discussion so that more and more the discussion's not just about the tangible but you know also about the other areas that also contribute to this value because there is value given to it and there is definitely a plus to being able to invest in placemaking invest in all of those human scale moments on the ground plane whilst you put in a large tower or not or a large public building or not yeah well look i think there's a lot of talk about placemaking and you know, places for people and the kind of cliche. I don't think much of it is genuine. And I I don't think urban design 
is something that you can add after the event, which is how most developers think of it. They kind of think, oh, well, this is my building, and, and then we'll get an urban designer and to come, you know, plant some shrubs around the bottom of it, which is dumb. And I don't think that you can rely on developers to do the right thing voluntarily because, broadly speaking, they won't because that's not their interest. That's not what they're in it for. Developers are there to make profit. So it, essentially it comes back to two things. One is government and one is community. And I think it's very evident, if it wasn't already, from COVID that we there are things that we really love in cities and a lot of that comes down to the intimate relationship that you have, that you as an individual have with your city when you walk. You know, so pedestrians are critical to that and encouraging um, pedestrianism is important. So thinking about pedestrians as a legitimate form of transport. I had this argument with an editor in New York recently. She said, you can't call pedestrians transport. And I go, well, I think you can because actually they are and they're probably the most important in a city because anything else, you know, destroys the fabric, whereas pedestrians actually enhance the fabric of the place because they engage with it differently. They, you know, only pedestrian life will encourage retail at ground level, for example. You can't do it any other way. So you actually need to have a vibrant and lively and mixed use, diverse kind of city, whether it's a city, you know, the city centre with of towers or whether it's a kind of a four-storey village centre with sort of a Surrey Hills or a Burwood. Well, Burwood's kind of a bit high-rise, but anyway, you know, there are lots. It's a sort of polycentric city now, Sydney, and that's a good thing. And within that, there's a lot of change of pace. I mean, I, I don't have very much interest in suburban development. I know lots of people love the suburbs, but I'm much more interested in what I think of as urban places, by which I don't mean high-rise necessarily, but I mean quite high density. So, in other words, the kind of place that encourages walking because it's quite fine-grained, interesting to walk around, rewarding because, it, you know, there are, there are small blocks and narrow streets and interesting change of pace and things happening and stuff to look at and, you know, that sort of thing. So, only a reasonably dense city fabric can support that kind of pedestrian life where you can walk the dry cleaner or the movies or the local bar and do that stuff on foot. So that's really important. I think those village centres are terribly important and we need to understand them and cultivate them and love them. And there are two ways of doing that. Both are kind of to do with education. Well, perhaps three. One is actually educating ourselves, teaching uh, civics, teaching sort of the built form of civic life to children. You know, I don't see why you can't teach this stuff in primary school. Children understand the difference between, you know, a, a boring place and an interesting one, or a boring street and, a, and one that's fun to walk around and, and explore. So I think that stuff is, is very teachable and we should be doing it. I also think that governments need to understand how to control development in a way that isn't just parceling out windfall rewards between developers but actually has some civic purpose and that needs to be taken very seriously as a discipline and again it should be taught that should be taught at universities and the local government centre at UTS should be teaching that stuff and how to do it. Nobody teaches that properly. There's planning and there's so-called urban design but they're not taught in that way from the public interest and governments should also be undertaking model developments you know there should be public housing things which are showcase how brilliant these or and there should be village center developments that showcase these things uh, the closest example is you know obviously uh clover moore's city center and the stuff that they're doing at green square 
is an obvious example where they've built that fabulous pool and the fabulous community centre and wonderful library and, you know, civic places, and it's actually starting to feel quite buzzy, quite interesting. But all governments should be doing that. And Rob Stokes and Anthony Roberts, the planning ministers now, should be absolutely ashamed of themselves because they're still just talking about making things easier for developers. And, I mean, they talk about, you know, care for country, but they're not doing any of that and they've been in power for a decade so where's the evidence and we should also be again this is the thing for government there should be enabling acts which encourage not just allow but encourage communities to understand that there are other ways of procuring buildings than relying on developers to build everything in other words it it isn't all about profit there are cooperative and community ways of producing buildings and Nightingale in Melbourne is a very good example which don't involve someone extracting a huge amount of profit from it and just buggering everybody else's neighbourhoods in order to do it but actually involve creating good places that are environmentally responsible and really cool to live in that's possible you know and we should be taking that opportunity in our hands and just running with it I don't know I don't know what's wrong with us that we don't think this is exciting. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting perspective because I think I've had discussions where uh, sometimes I think the general public, I am absolutely generalising here, but those that are not trained in our profession and hasn't had um, that much exposure to the makings of a city and how a building comes about, sometimes feel a bit removed and not having enough rights to participate in this conversation because much of what we produce is for the general public and like you described it's very commendable that uh, the city of sydney through lord mayor's work prioritizes the civic and the collective good the public projects are placed there first in order to build a city it's not about the dense buildings that goes first and is not purely about the skyline of um, any new pockets of the sydney growing so How do you begin to have that conversation with non-architects and those that are in the outer ring, let's say, because I think architects love to keep it a bit more close-knit because it seemed as only for those that are educated to speak that language, (laughs) if I may say so. I do think that you're you're right. People are intimidated by architecture and planning, particularly by big-scale stuff like planning, and I think that it suits governments and planners and you know, all of those myriad planning bodies, all of the development control agencies and the blah, blah, blahs, that they're all very happy to keep the public out and they make it very difficult. You know, you have to go and register in order to be included in any public meetings and then you know that they don't take your notice anyway, so what's the point? And architects too are complicit, I think, partly through simple arrogance that they think that people can't understand and therefore they don't talk about it and also for their fear of actually saying anything in public. But I also believe that that's really wrong and that architects also should understand that they're not entirely beholden to the development lobby. They can afford to have a voice in public. And what they should be doing is using the single skill that they have that nobody else has, which is architects can draw. I mean, I know most architects can't draw by hand anymore, but nevertheless, architects are trained to use their imaginations in three dimensions and to put that into a drawing and they should be taking every opportunity for example the central station at the moment you know it's not just atlassian and the horrible toga thing but there's a huge development planned at the back of central station that should be 
immensely controversial. Every architect in town should be drawing images of what they think it should be like, how the park would relate to the towers around it. You know, you could actually produce New York Central Park there if you wanted to. You could do though you could do amazing things. But where are the architects in this? They're just completely silent. They say nothing. And it infuriates me that I think it's irresponsible, honestly, that Architects are not out there with their pens and paper saying to people, having neighbourhood meetings, having in every shopping centre saying, look, this is how it could be. This is a future you can have. Why don't we talk about this? Why doesn't it become a voting issue? If architects could be instrumental in making these really voting issues, and that is the only way that governments will take them seriously, if people start to care and architects can have it in their control to make that happen, and they don't do it. And I don't understand. I mean, I know that there's a certain amount of self-interest and they're frightened of upsetting, you know, their next boss, next developer, client. But that isn't really a good enough excuse to abandon this responsibility to take hold of the future and make it better. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think that will definitely tie in with other episodes because I think, like you described earlier on today, it is almost a duty to participate in this discussion and... um, because we're trained and because we have that extra ability to be able to, like you described, visualise it. And I think more and more that visualisation is becoming quite powerful. Not enough vision projects are being established to actually make a loud comment about how we want our cities to be or how we want to be able to inhabit those spaces. And, and I think much of your writing talks about space. And space is so important across the scale of in public arenas, in ground floor kind of arrival moments, to even like you described the enclaves of natures and parks. Because I think in your book you touched on how important it is to be able to see the neighbourhood street as, you know, where you can meander through and have moments. And, and I think it takes a pandemic to be able to allow those that live in those neighbourhood, with it or without it, to realise how important it is. Because I think... We don't talk enough about it in our projects, uh, depending on the type of work we do. And more and more we start to delineate it's another discipline's issue. So that I think uh, we've come so far away where it takes a collective now and maybe it is that difficulty in bringing together everyone to be able to make this comment. How do you see Sydney moving from here? Then In your book, you are still optimistic, like you described. There's still, <laughs> still the joys there. But it's about making sure that we, we take action to be able to swing it back to why Sydney has such a great brand in the global market. Because I think in the recent time, you hear about government agencies talk about how important it is to protect the brand Sydney and I mean I wish everyone had the same arrival experience as you and we hope that when everyone returns again that they see Sydney as important in offering those experiences and it's not just the Skyland the postcard that we see on the plane maybe if that was advertised. Um, well look I'm a bit resistant to the idea of the city as a brand because it plays into that notion that everything's a market and we're all consumers. I think it's really important that we think of ourselves not as consumers but as citizens and and that we think of our city not as something we're trying to sell to the world but something real that we're trying to make. In other words, a home. I also think that that's, you know, if you're thinking tourism, what tourists want to see is something real. What they don't want is just more kind of tourist bullshit. What they actually want is, is a real place with real people living in a real way that's different from somewhere else. So I think Sydney's whole push to make Sydney into a sort of so-called global city 
I show my students a picture of Perth Docklands, Melbourne, Sydney, and you can't tell the difference. Nobody can guess which is which because they're just all the same. And I think it's it's a real mistake to think of ourselves as being engaged in a marketing exercise. And it's much more important to think of ourselves as being involved in a almost a sort of a homemaking exercise. I mean, there are, what, six million people in Sydney or something. And collectively, we need to be engaged in making this a good home for ourselves, which means not just somewhere that's fun and, you know, fair, but also somewhere that's sustainable and engaging as a project. So there should be hundreds and hundreds of you know, zero carbon housing projects that you can get involved with or cooperative housing or ways of producing net zero energy and stuff across everywhere, across the entire metropolis. Everybody should be able to be engaged in this. There should be, you know, cycling projects where if you go to Scandinavia or, you know, Holland, where they're really good at this stuff, then those things are available everywhere and people get energised by them. And the only thing that impels people to be less self-interested and less like, I need a huge house with a pool and a home theatre and four bedrooms and 17 en-suites. The thing that drags you away from that kind of bloated ego approach is the thing that's actually recognising it's more fun to be engaged in the bigger city, in the wider project, in the long term, protecting the city and the future for our children and our grandchildren. And that isn't just virtuous it's actually just much more fun for people in the end because it's purposeful so i think we need to sort of switch our mindset but i also think that australia's cities generally and sydney is an example stand at a kind of crossroads at this point because we've still got politicians who are still approving absolutely irresponsible greenfield sprawl out there you know 50 or more kilometers from the city center with you know grey roofs, houses that almost touch each other where there's no possibility of tree planting, where urban heat island is going to be appalling, where everything's going to be both car dependent and air conditioning dependent forever because it's too too sprawling ever to be served by public transport. So people are just going to have to drive and have two and three cars per house. I mean, it's just ludicrous. We should absolutely not be allowing any of that and we shouldn't absolutely refuse to to let the fear of proximity generated by COVID um, to push us into more of that. We should be pursuing the knowledge that medium density and medium rise, as much as high density and high rise, can be much more fun. And that's a design question. So again, it comes back to architects and the nature of design and the role and responsibility of architects in visualising that in the way that proves to people that it can be really cool. That is amazing because I think you speak with such passion and I think what you talk about is requiring a generational investment and I think that is absolutely right because I think all of these short-term games is what's led us to where we are today and um, and I think, like you described, much of it is because it's intangible so everyone seems to be able to just put that aside. And, Interesting to hear you comment on the distancing, that distancing is not to be forever, isn't it, like you described? Like, who really wants to be socially that distance where you're so disengaged with, where all of these uh, active, um, you know, cultural hubs are being, you know, 
developed at the moment. Though you did comment polycentric is really working and I do support that because I think it's such a lovely thing to see where within proximity still that there is different enclaves and villages that are established where it allows you to walk to different you know, neighbourhoods to experience a different um, moment in life. And I think all of this takes intent. I think you talk about it where it's purposefully curating those special moments that's larger than life that allows everyone to have a higher quality of living because I think everyone deserves that rather than being put in a box just so that they can meet essential needs of a you know, protected environment. Absolutely. And I, I think Sydney has got such a huge sprawling footprint now all the way across the Cumberland Basin. and. So many developers still, you know, they say, oh, well, we, of course, we're in the city centre, we design excellence, but when we're out in, you know, Bankstown or Cameltown, it, nobody cares about it out there, so we just produce rubbish. And we take our kind of B and C teams out there, and, and it's a design gradient that reflects, I think, sort of a class snobbery, to be honest, and I think that should be thoroughly unacceptable. It would be very easy, you know, Clover's got that idea of a city of villages, which is a very strong idea, and Sydney is naturally there because it's essentially modelled on London, which has, you know, this sort of a whole lot of high streets which string together these villages. And so it's it's got the DNA and it can easily be built on, but, you know, the Six Cities plan that the government released the other day has this idea that you have, you know, these great big mammoth CBDs and then, and then still everyone lives in the burbs and drives to these wretched things. Whereas we should be saying this is this is a, a real kind of a, a crocheted mat of hundreds of villages and we can stamp out the plan of Surrey Hills in Campbelltown or, or you know, Cabramatta and those funky little streets can be available for everyone. Everybody can have, you know, easy walking Wonderful. I mean, Cabramatta's already got already got fabulous eateries, of course, but it hasn't got that lovely urban form, which you know, with streets that are too narrow and houses that are too small by all of the modern rules, and yet everybody loves them. And, and all of those too narrow, too small houses are now worth three and a half million dollars because people want to be there and people want to they want that proximity and they will pay for it. So it's it's wrong that that's only available to wealthy people. It should be. It should be and it can be available for everyone and I and I think it's patronising for it not to be made available in an easy way by the government. You know, government planning could easily mandate or at least encourage that sort of village development everywhere. There's really no excuse for it not to be happening. I definitely support that because I think I loved you referencing all of these little suburbs in Sydney. I say little, they're not really. There's a lot of people living out there and I think yeah. it's it's amazing to hear you reference it because each of them already has a bit of that identity that allows for it to translate. And yeah. you reference Cabramatta. It is amazing how they they occupy the streets and how they go about <laughs> collecting yeah. groceries that, you know, you actually have a local grocer that knows your name. Because you're, you know, picking it up and you, you, eateries, eateries that are unpolished but amazing because they serve quality food and it is heartwarming to see how they have a community. And like you said, what is lacking is that the urban density for, you know, for that to be accessed by all without having to roll out suburbs and cookie cutting all that, um, you know, project homes out there. And I think that is definitely where we can improve on. 
to throw in the last question that is quite fun <laughs> have you thought about your next project or next book that you might want to write because I think uh, you know, you, I, I love hearing you talk about how you know everyone finds their own outlet and that you know writing for you is something you've established to be able to be that you know platform for you to have a voice and you know if you were an architect you'd probably be very passionate about uh, visualization which you always have that architect in you which is why I love and I think is relevant for all of us to see why it's important to to, to see outside of our day-to-day practice. Look, I do have some projects in mind, but they're, at the moment they're sort of unformed and there are a couple of books I'd quite like to write, although writing books is a mug's game because you can't make any money. So really it's a bit of an indulgence, but there are, there are some things I'd quite like to write on this kind of theme, actually. And there are also some projects, some built projects, which I'd quite like to be involved in as sort of demonstration models. So really showing what could be done with urban and suburban fabric to make it just more engaging and livelier. Because I don't think it's terribly hard, honestly, but I'm going to have to wait until we get a bit more behind them in order to <laughs> make them actually public. But yeah, I've got lots of good ideas at the moment. I'm still, it's, you know, so I'm currently at the divergent stage of planning all this. We'll wait till it converges onto something real. Oh, definitely. I think that's amazing because I think uh, with that one we can wrap up because I think you've been very generous with your time and I think all of this is really useful because I think we opened up so many questions and hopefully our listeners that are, you know, whether they're studying or not, whether they're getting to know architecture, because they're hearing it for the first time on our platform. I think it's useful to be able to engage with this conversation. It's an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Sally. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest and advocate, Elizabeth Farrelly. Thank you so much for your support and wisdom throughout your career. And you can order Elizabeth's latest book, Killing Sydney, The Fight for a City's Soul, online or through your favourite bookstore. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.